Corinthians chapter number seven, and we will continue our study in first Corinthians, sorry, first Corinthians six. The fun, the fun chapter, first Corinthians seven, is in a week or so. Um, so turn to first Corinthians six tonight. Um, tonight I've I've titled this message, and I think this will be an interesting topic that we don't often talk about. It comes up in the Bible. It is something the Bible talks about, but it's not the most frequently mentioned topic in the Bible. But this passage probably gives us the most comprehensive look at a theology of the body, a theology of the body. How many of you would agree we live in a world that is confused about God's plan for the body? Would we agree on that? We live in a world that is confused and has a wrong and unbiblical view of the body. I think this shows up and has shown up the longest in relation to mankind's, or really Americans, improper uh, worth on human life. We understand uh, that abortion really is a theology of the body issue, that those who view abortion as acceptable are not seeing the value that scripture puts on life and on the body. And it's sad to me, and I think you've probably noticed this, that even those who are politically conservative have almost altogether abandoned a proper view of the worth of a human body. Another issue that expresses this uh, issue in our culture is the broad willingness to accept or, or to dismiss, rather, this moral sin of homosexuality. That's a theology of the body issue. Um, people would say that um, it's really their desires that ultimately are what's most important, that the gender that they were given is unimportant as to who they should mate with. What about self-harm and cutting and bulimia and other things like that. Those are theology of the body issues. What about the popularization, like I mentioned here just a second ago, of eating disorders? The, those things have skyrocketed with the advent of social media. It's, it's far more of an issue uh, with people in this age because they're comparing their image in the mirror with those they see online. And now, of course, I think the most uh, aggressive thing that is happening in our culture is that our culture is quickly dismissing the gender that God has given people at their birth and trying to erase the line between God-given gender or uh, sex, your biological uh, gender identity. These are theology of the body issues. Whether or not you and I see that it's so ingrained in us maybe a biblical viewpoint on those things, but at the core of those issues is a biblical or unbiblical understanding and view of the body. But it's not just the unsaved world that has maybe improper views of God's view of the body. Christians can at times have views that don't line up with a biblical theology of the body as well. And though it may look a lot more subtle, and praise God for that, it's just as much of a deviation 
from what the Bible says about the body. Let me hear a couple things that maybe you're thinking these ways or have thought these ways that represent an improper view of the body. When you and I see holiness as an issue that is purely spiritual and not physical, we have neglected a proper theology of the body. What does that look like? Uh, For some, and even I've heard pastors do this, they dismiss the importance of mental health. I've heard pastors say something like this. You know, if I have someone come to my office who needs counseling, I just tell them to read their Bible and pray because that fixes about everything. Well, friend, uh, uh, the Bible gives us a different view that spirituality is not just that issue, that our body is fallen. Our body's a product of a fallen world. It too needs redemption. And so this fallen state of our body also manifests itself in mental illnesses as much as it does in physical diseases. Some people also think spirituality purely affects them on a soul level and not a physical level. I honor God with what I do in my soul and in my mind, but what I do with my body is not as important. That's why a lot of Christians might dismiss their health habits or their addictions because they think that if I read my Bible and pray, but I trash my body, it's not a big deal. If I'm addicted to a substance or I'm um, engaged in alcohol addiction or I'm a a horrible smoker and and am doing damage to my body with that type of an addiction, or I have a diabetes diagnosis, but I ignore what my doctor said and indulge in a bunch of foods that are literally wrecking my body, that's not a spiritual issue. There's a lot of Christians that view it that way. It's a theology of the body issue. Also, uh, sometimes as Christians, we have a misshaped view of eternity. I've been at more than one funeral where something like this is said. Ah, this old body is just a shell. The real them is with Jesus now. But what our passage is going to teach us tonight is that that is incorrect. That your body is more than just a shell. Uh, Sorry to break it to you. In some way, you're going to be with your body forever. And 1 Corinthians 6 tonight and 1 Corinthians 15 is going to show us that bodily resurrection is taught in the Bible and that it means you will have a body with you when you resurrect with Christ. Now, it's not modern people and modern Christians who have been the first to neglect this. In fact, behind many of the issues we've talked about, the Corinthians, the the sexual issues that they were dealing with in their church, behind a lot of that seemed to be an improper view of the body. And that is what Paul is going to address in this passage. He's going to give us wisdom from Christ about the body. And you're going to be surprised how important and how much this affects every little area of your life. And here's what our pastor is going to teach us tonight. Because your body is valued by God, you must use it to glorify God. I know this might be a hard thing for you to feel, but your body matters to God. He doesn't value your body in the same way the world values it. Because God values your body, he has called you to honor him with your body. 
Our passage tonight breaks down into three principles and two commands. So Paul's gonna give us three principles to correct a misshapen view of the body. He's gonna teach us from Christ himself how we ought to view the body. He's gonna use Christ to instruct us about the body. And then he's gonna give us two crystal clear imperative commands that should govern what you and I do with our body. And I just have to laugh because while I could have had a pie fellowship tonight, but I'm not creative or forward thinking enough to do that. Instead tonight, we're gonna talk about how to glorify God with your body and your eating habits four days before Thanksgiving. Welcome to Fellowship Baptistry. Aren't you glad you're a member here? Praise God. So let's read our text in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse number 12, and we'll end in verse 20. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and belly for the meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both, both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's look into it tonight. <clears throat> Told you Paul gives us three principles and two commands. Here's the first one. How do we look at our body and see it the way God wants us to see it? We need to recognize that not everything that is okay is right. Not everything that is okay is right. Verse number 12 um, helps us see this. Now, it's helpful that in some editions of the Bible or even translations, they will put quotes around the first phrase of verse number 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. That is not Paul's own words. He's quoting somebody there. He's quoting the Corinthians. The Corinthians were saying this. And Paul will do this throughout the letter. He'll take a quotation from either the Corinthian church in a letter they wrote to him or from the culture, and then he will basically attack it like a defense attorney or a prosecuting attorney. And so the Corinthians were saying this. All things are lawful to me. Everything is allowable, Paul. Now, we don't know exactly where the Corinthians got this idea, but it very possibly could have been them misusing something Paul said. If you read Galatians, you're gonna see some words that sound very similar to all things are lawful. Because we recognize that Paul was a big advocate that Christ has freed us from the yoke of bondage, Particularly, he would go around preaching that 
um, Gentile Christians are free from having to observe Jewish regulatory customs with diets and holidays. And so Paul maybe would have preached a sermon that would have been titled something like, all things are lawful to me. But it seems like the Corinthians took that idea and it kind of hijacked it away from its original context. And we're now saying, because I have Christ, I can do whatever I want. I don't know. Have you ever heard someone who calls himself a Christian say something like that? Now, we exhibit this mindset, too, at times. We take a very liberal view on God's grace, and we say things like this. The Bible never said, I can't blank. The Bible never said, Pastor Mike, I can't smoke. The Bible never said, I can't eat a Twinkie, you know, The Bible never said, I can't watch this show. I can't listen to this music. And to that, I'll concede. That's true. Kind of. Because that's not all the Bible has to say. Just because you can read your Bible and never find a black and white command that says, thou shalt never eat really unhealthy food, which I'm not going to go there necessarily in my preaching, or thou shalt never watch a movie that includes certain material, that doesn't mean that God uh, has nothing to say about it. Because Paul himself says, yes, there are some things that we are free to do in Christ. There's not biblical command that tells us not to do them, but he says there are two stipulations on that freedom. All things are lawful, but it's not right, pardon my double negative, if it's not beneficial. It isn't right if it's not beneficial. Meaning that it is only okay, it's only right if that thing in question is beneficial. So God may not have said anything about it, but if it's not beneficial to you, then that, do, that means you cannot partake. So you cannot do just whatever you want with your body. That's what the Corinthians were arguing. In fact, Paul's going to argue even more extensively in chapter number eight that not only does it have to be beneficial to you, but you can't do something that's not beneficial for your neighbor, for your fellow church member. You have to be concerned about them. So just because the Bible doesn't say doesn't mean you're off the hook. Because if it hurts your body or hurts your mind, It doesn't matter if there's not a black and white command. It's not okay. It's not right. Paul gives another stipulation in verse number 12. He tells us it isn't right if it rules your life. Notice the end of verse number 12. He says, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And there's actually a parallel there with the word lawful, which connotes authority, So he says, all things we have the authority to do, but I will not be brought under the authority of any of those things. Now, there's a lot of gray area things in the Christian life I think this principle speaks to. Because there are a lot of things that are not um, outlawed in the Bible per se, but if it rules your life or presents a potential danger to rule your life, you and I as Christians should be more discerning than to go down that road. For instance, I could pick on a lot of things. 
I thought about this one time. You know, a lot of people preach against gambling, and there's a lot of Proverbs about gambling, but every time they preach against slot machines and going to Vegas, but we forget sometimes that it's not just those type of things that are addictive, but I know a lot of people who treat the stock market like a gambling mechanism and are addicted to that. I know a lot of people who are addicted to their phones, who are literally ruled by their phones. Their life is dominated by it. And I know in a practical sense, we all need a phone. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but you and I both know there's a difference between practically relying on your phone for a job and your life being dominated by the fact you have to stare at your phone compulsively. Can we all admit there's a difference between those two things, right? So being brought under the power of something is wrong, even if the thing itself is not wrong. There's nothing wrong using your phone, okay? But being addicted to it, Paul is saying here, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Phones weren't in the mind of an ancient biblical author. But if you are addicted to something, that makes it wrong. That makes it wrong. What about as a Christian? You know, this is a hot topic. Recreational use of marijuana. There's other verses that speak to that. But what about the the fact that most people's lives, when they go down that road, are governed by that? These are tough topics, and there's a lot of debate that can happen there. What about drinking? What about smoking? Again, I'm not saying that the Bible black and white outlaws any of those things. The Bible has a lot of positive commands associated with alcohol, and you can do your own research on what they meant in their day about that. I don't personally drink because I'm concerned about the addictive effects of it. But yet, here's what the Bible tells us is that you and I have to be really careful about not being ruled by other things that will rule our body's desires. What about pornography? What are things that your mind is hooked on? We think of addictions as physical substances. There's so many other ways we can become addicted and ruled by other things. So instead of just asking yourself, does the Bible say this is wrong? Paul says you need to add another question to your question book when you're deciding whether or not you should do something. You should ask, does the Bible say this is wrong? But you should also ask, does this thing rule me? Am I addicted to this? You might say, well, I don't know. Well, why don't you consult your pocketbook? Why don't you consult your schedule? Why don't you consult your spouse and ask them if this thing rules your life? Because if it's, uh, it may be okay, but if it rules your life, it's not right. Here's the second principle. Paul shows us in verses 13 through 14 that our body has a resurrected purpose in Christ. Are we still together here tonight? All right, all right. Our body has a resurrected purpose in Christ. Look at verse number 13. Again, we should look at this phrase, and again, several printings of the Bible helpfully put quotes around this. Meats for the belly and belly for the meats. That Paul is quoting them. That's what they would have responded. They would have said, Paul, if this thing rules my life, I got one on you, Paul. What if my body demands I have it like food? Are you saying eating food is wrong? What about our sexual desires? Those are God-given and natural. And so they would say, Paul, just like my body needs food, my body needs these other things. And so Paul says, Paul quotes them and says, well, let me tell you what God thinks about that. 
Yes, your body has natural inbuilt desires, right? Your body has natural urges for food, for water, and even for sexual union. And this is where we need to sympathize and pray for our single brothers and sisters in Christ because they have this thing that they need to submit to the lordship of Christ. But we've seen so much of our culture justify cohabitation, justify fornication, justify homosexuality. Why? Because pastor, uh, sir, ma'am, my body wants to do this and therefore it's right. And here's what Paul has to say to that. Your body may have a natural urge, but because of Christ's resurrection, your body has a redeemed purpose. Look at verse 13. He says in verse number 13 that we need to recognize that these natural urges will one day be done away with at the resurrection. God, he says, will destroy both it and them. What is it and them? The meat, the meats, and the belly. In our redeemed state, we will not need food. We will have food and partake of it, right? The marriage supper of the lamb, but we won't need it anymore. But we in this time have natural urges that we have to obviously listen to, right? You know, listen to your body. There are some things that you can learn from that. But he says, listen, your body has a redeemed purpose. He says, the body is not for fornication, The body's not for fornication. He says in verse number 13, your body, look at this phrase, is for the Lord. Dwell on that a little bit this week. I know it's Thanksgiving. And and trust me, Thanksgiving's not wrong and having a lot of food on Thanksgiving is not wrong. I promise you. The Old Testament included and commanded feasts. All right? Your conscience is relieved. You're welcome, okay? Okay. But think about and meditate on what it means that your body is for God. Several people in here are married or have been married. You recognize as a married person, chapter seven is gonna make this argument that your body is your spouse's. It's not your own even. You don't have control over your own body. You are supposed to use your body as a vessel to serve your spouse in some ways. First Corinthians seven is gonna make that case. But in the same way, Paul is saying this, your body's not just for your spouse, your body is for God. What would that change in your life if you, rem- if you recognize that your body is God's purchased possession? How does Paul prove to us that our body belongs to the Lord? He shows us that God cares so much about the body that when Christ rose from the dead, Christ did not resurrect as some sort of wandering spirit. Think about this. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a body, yes or no? Was his body the same? No, it was changed. And and, and in 1 Corinthians 15, if you wanna know what our redeemed body is like, think about what Christ's redeemed body is like. That gives you a good picture of maybe what your body in heaven will be like. I don't know if you're gonna lose a couple inches on the waist or not. I don't know, man, that'll be fun, right? But nonetheless, we're gonna have redeemed bodies that are not limited in the same ways, but the fact that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead, verse number 14 shows us that God cares about your body. He plans to use it for the rest of eternity. Think about that. Some of you are all like, I sure hope I get my 30-year-old version of my body, not my 60-year-old version. 
But what Paul's saying in verse number 14, saying this, that if, if your body, if Christ's body was resurrected from the dead and he appeared in bodily form, not as some wandering spirit, then that shows us that the body has a redeemed purpose. That shows us that the body has something uh, in store in God's plan and God wants you to use it in a way that is redeemed and resurrected just like Jesus was. Your body is not your own. Your body is for the Lord. By the way, Paul doesn't add a stipulation to this. Paul doesn't say your body's for the Lord if it's really skinny. Your body's for the Lord if all of your joints are working real good. Somebody say amen to that. Your body isn't just for the Lord if it's functioning well. No, your body is the Lord's and he valued it enough to give it to you and to still let you have it. And he loves you enough that he's gonna do away with some of the imperfections when the resurrection happens, but you're still gonna have your body in some way, shape, or form. But then Paul takes it a little bit further in verse number 15 through 17 and he says that our body has a special union with Christ. So not only does our body have a resurrected purpose, our body is united with Christ in a very deep and profound way. And Paul explains how we are united to Christ by using the sexual relationship in marriage as an illustration of how deeply united we are with Christ. Look at verse number 15. He says, know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? That's, a, that's another way of saying your body is Christ's body part. You ever heard people say, we are the hands and feet of Jesus? That's kind of what they mean. How do you separate, Judson, you from your arm? You can't. It's you, right? And he's saying the same way, you can't separate who you are from who Christ is if you've been saved. You are joined to him as deeply as your arm is joined to your torso. There's a deep union that is there. And the best way to illustrate that, and he uses a verse number 16, is the physical and spiritual union between a husband and wife. Look at verse 16. He says, know ye not that he would, which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, he's quoting Genesis, saith he shall be one flesh. I don't know if this ever dawned on you, but the physical union of a husband and a wife is an illustration that God has been forming from the beginning of time to teach us something about our relationship with Christ. Then the same way marriage is meant to be a profound, deep union, where you stop seeing two people and you see one unit moving together, that is an illustration of what God has ordained for you in Jesus. That the longer you grow with him and the longer you live with him and the longer you love him, the harder it is to tell the difference between the two because you're moving as one. Marriage is this deep union. That's why Paul says in verse number 17 that there are um, there is the same deep union with the Lord. And in verse number 15, he says that when you and I go and we take our body and we prostitute it, it is not just damaging ourselves, it's hurtful to Christ. We can't take his body parts and use them for an unredeemed sinful purpose. No, he says, God forbid. This is strong language. 
He's saying that to, for us to do a sexual sin outside of marriage messes with us in a unique way. It, it, it's, it's like ripping someone away that is joined together deeply. And the more we do that, it messes with our brains. Now, do you see the value of our body? Are you seeing it? Our body's so important that God says, hey, listen, you can't just do whatever you want with it. Even if the Bible says there's nothing wrong with this certain thing, black and white, you need to ask yourself some additional questions. You don't just ask, is it okay? You ask, is it helpful? Is it beneficial? You don't just ask, is it okay? You ask, will this rule my life? Will this thing I'm doing with my body come to control me? He says, you don't just ask, does the Bible say it's okay? You need to remember, you need to remember that your body's purpose is not just to be controlled by our basest desires. No, because we are resurrected with Christ, we are to live in victory over sin, and we are to use our bodies in a redeemed way. And then he says, you need to remember that your body is united with Christ in the deepest, most profound way possible. You are joined to him. And that's why Paul says that there are two things you and I must do with our bodies. That if we view the body like Christ views the body, then it's going to lead to us doing two different things, to obeying two different commands. And Paul comes out and he jumps right off the page, doesn't it, in verse number 18. Here's the first command to guide your use of your body. Here's the first command. Run away from sexual immorality. Run away from sexual immorality. If your body has this special purpose granted to you by the resurrection of Christ, then that means you and I have no place in our lives for sexual immorality. In fact, Paul says there are elevated consequences with those type of sins. Oh no, I'm not just talking about the relational damage. Look at verse 18. Every sin that a man do, doeth or does is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. He says this, sexual sin is self-destructive. It's self-destructive. Think about this. I want you to picture your living room right now. Picture your living room. I want you to imagine everything that's hanging on the walls in your living room. Every mirror, every cross, every frame. And imagine if instead of being nailed or screwed to the wall, that you did what I feel like some of the original builders of this building did. You super glued everything down. You know, we felt like that on demo day, didn't we, in the chapel? Every mirror, every decoration, every frame in your living room was super glued to the wall. Now imagine that you want to change out that picture frame. And you've got to get it off the wall. And it's no longer as simple as taking it off the hook. You have to yank that super glued picture frame off the wall. What's going to happen to the wall? What's going to happen to the wall? It's going to pull drywall paper off the wall, right? 
which is a whole big mess there for texturing when you have that happen. Now imagine you start pulling off every piece of decoration in your house that's super glued to the wall. That's what Paul's saying happens when people commit sexual sin. They join themselves like super glue to someone else and they yank themselves away and they go and join themselves to someone else and they yank themselves away. And when all of that process is said and done, you have a living room that has paint and drywall ripped off the walls everywhere. It's painful. It's self-destructive. And Paul says, because of how destructive it is, run away. I think he's thinking about Joseph, don't you? That when the, the most opportune moment presented itself for Joseph, what an example he is. He, he had the opportunity to be with the, the biggest shot in in Egypt, be with his wife, I'm sure she was attractive. I'm sure it could have promised Joseph upward mobility in society if he had slept with her and joined with her. But Joseph instead, though the opportunity was perfect, though he may have never gotten caught, he says, I'm not doing anything with you, and he runs away coat in hand. Paul says that's an illustration for how serious you ought to be about sexual immorality. How serious we ought to be about it. And I, I think sometimes, literally, it means to run away. But for many of us, maybe we're not gonna be caught in a Joseph and Potiphar situation, but the urgency that was shown in Joseph's situation is the urgency you and I should show when it comes to sexual temptation. Because of how self-destructive it is, because of how it violates your resurrected purpose in Christ, you and I must do everything in our power to run away from sexual sin. What does that look like? For some, it might mean that you know you shouldn't have a close relationship with that person who you are tempted to be with and you think maybe they're tempted to be with you. Men, women, let me encourage you to be really careful about the relationships and friendships you have with the opposite sex. Now, I'm not taking a misogynistic view where all women are just looking to commit adultery with guys who are who are desirous of those things. That's not what I mean. It's because your heart is wicked. You don't know how to respect boundaries as much as you think you do. We have to be careful with the relationships that we engage in. It's so easy at, at work or in a social club, especially when you're away from your spouse, to become too attached to somebody else and fall into sin. It's happened to so many people don't think you're exempt this fleeing, I think, tells us how we should deal with mental temptation to sexual immorality. What would it look like to run away from lust? To be extremely serious about dealing with how your mind looks at an image. And parents, I want to say a word to you and to myself real quick. Paul says that these, this type of sin, sexual immorality, is extremely serious and extremely self-destructive. And I think we need to recognize parents, no matter how old our kids are, one or 18, that you and I, as a parent, 
are the, should be the primary voice in our child's life to help them understand and have a biblical view of sex. Yes, we are the primary voice. I wanna warn you that it's your job to show your kids, to teach your kids, to tell your kids about the physical, spiritual, and emotional impact of improper sexual relationships. The Bible is clear on that. They're gonna be the odd one out in their high school if they're not sleeping around. I could promise you that. I was in high school 15 years ago and I was the odd one out. It's way different today. You have to be at least as aggressive about teaching them the right things as the culture is about teaching them the wrong things. And listen, that doesn't start when they need the talk. That starts at age one when you're building a relationship with them because parents, you are investing every day in a relationship that someday you're gonna have to withdraw from that bank account of trust and say, listen, I need to have a serious talk with you. And if you've neglected your parental responsibilities for a decade or more, they ain't gonna listen when they need to listen. But let me also warn you this way. So many parents, even Christian parents, delegate this job. They delegate it. Some of them, they avoid it. And I'll be honest, I've never had the talk. My kids are a little too young for that. Awkward. Really awkward. So it's easy for parents to ignore it. I don't know how many times I've heard of pastors or myself been in premarital counseling where it's quite obvious that a parent hasn't done their job to educate their kid about sex. They haven't done their job. Some of us, we gloss over it because it's so awkward. We have that one talk and it's like, I'm done. I did it. I had my talk. They're going to remember everything I said for the rest of their life. No, they're going to forget it tomorrow. I, I hate to break it to you. They're going to forget everything you said tomorrow. Some parents, they delegate to the school system. Well, we all know how bad of an idea that is. And our schools have sex education classes. I'm not saying that's wrong or that you shouldn't let your kids go to those, but I'm just going to tell you, it's funny. I went to two of those. They had it in sixth grade and in eighth grade. And the first time I went to sex ed in sixth grade, they, said, they taught about abstinence. And then when I was in eighth grade, it's funny, the curriculum changed. They taught about safe sex. So the school system's not teaching what the Bible teaches about this. In their mind, it's like, well, kids are doing it, so we just gotta make sure they don't hurt themselves or get a disease. We're just gonna protect them from that. But parents, the only way they're gonna hear what the Bible says about this is if you speak in their life. And listen, let me remind you, this is not the pastor's job, the youth pastor's job, the children's ministry's job, God forbid. It's not any of their jobs, it's your job. It's your job, it's your job. Take it seriously, because man, so much heartache comes. Unnecessary heartache. Now listen. First Corinthians 6 is clear. There are some serious scars that this particular sin leaves because of the physical and psychological things that go on. But I do want to say to those who've maybe crossed these boundaries, don't buy into the lie and some people take this teaching and they say stuff like this, that if you give in to sexual sin, you'll never experience the fullest joy in marriage. 
That's not true. Paul doesn't say that. This is not an unforgivable sin. This is not a sin that that God in his grace can't help you work through and find healing and find restoration and, and deal with the relational turmoil that sometimes two people bring into their marriage because they've both given themselves over to other people in a past life. God can work through all of that. God can work through all of that and God's grace forgives every single sin someone commits even in this area. So Paul says, flee, run away from sexual immorality. But then he gets more broad, I think, in verses 19 through 20. So if you think, well, that's not an issue I'm dealing with right now. Well, verses 19 through 20 is for you, okay? He says this, glorify God with your body because it's his purchased possession. Your body was bought by Jesus Christ. Verses 19 through 20 use some very uh, uh, intense language. It says your body is the temple of God. Now you and I know enough about the Old Testament to know that the temple was super important. It's where God's presence dwelt in a special way, right? The glory cloud came down and what Paul is saying is because uh, the temple was the place where God's presence was and now your body and my body, if we are Christians, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That means our body is a new temple that God has built for his glory. And in the same way that the Old Testament temple and tabernacle of old deserve special treatment, it was managed very carefully. Paul is saying you need to manage your body in the same way or with the same carefulness that they manage the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's God's treasured possession. You ever bought something new and start treating it nicer the thing you had before it. You get that new mattress, that new coffee table, that new couch, and you're like, stop, we can't eat on the couch. That's what I say to my kids five times a day, I feel like. We can't eat on our couch, right? We get the new coffee table and we make sure we don't spill it. We don't, we don't do the same thing that scratched or ruined our old table. You know, you get the new car and you, you don't enjoy the seats that come with your car. You get seat covers. And so the seats that God gave you with your car are forever hidden for the rest of that car's life, right? We do a lot of things to manage these new things we buy. Why? Because they matter to us. We paid a lot for them. We take care of them. Preventative maintenance. I talked this morning about oil changes. A transmission check. We make sure the tires are looking good. We make sure the interior is looking okay. Why do we do that? Because something we paid a lot for needs to be taken care of carefully. Paul's making the same argument about your body. Christ purchased your body. Do you realize when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for your soul, he died for your body? Look at verse 20. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Your body was bought with a price. Christ died with his body to pay for your body's resurrection. He values it. Your body, listen, friend, is not yours. It is now 
borrowed property from Jesus. It is God's property. And God values your body so much that one day, instead of getting rid of your body and throwing it in the trash, he's going to instead choose to renew your body and make it even better, but still be in some way the same body you've had your whole life. And so if God loves your body enough to send his son to give his own body for it, if God loves your body enough to keep it going for the rest of eternity, then here's what Paul says. You better treat it well. It's the only one you've got. Glorify God with your body. What does that mean? I want to be careful not to preach as imperatives what's not clearly prescribed in the text, but I think it's easy for us to discern whether we are glorifying God in these areas or not, whether we are honoring him, whether we are managing the temple he's given us. Ask yourself this question. Does your relationship to food show that you want to glorify God with your body? There is a thing called gluttony. There is a thing called gluttony. That is a sin, okay? By the way, under eating is harmful to your body and doesn't show that you want to glorify God with your body either. That's why eating disorders are a spiritual issue and a physical issue that Christians, we, as Christians we should be concerned about. Does your relationship with food show that you care about a body that gives God glory? Does the food that you put into your body show that you want your body to give God glory? Does your relationship with physical exercise show that you want to give God glory with your body? Now, Paul didn't have to write to the Corinthians and say, go get on a treadmill every once in a while because they had a lifestyle that was very different from 21st century America. We have all this technology. We do way less physical labor than they did back then. But friends, the best way to keep your body as a well-running engine is to be a regular, uh, to be regularly engaged in some form of physical activity. That's caring for the temple. I really admire uh, Jerry and Ruth for this. They are like hardcore walkers and bike riders. Hardcore. And I think their health at their age shows uh, the dividends of the investment that they've made for a very, very, very long time. I think that is honoring the fact that God gave them a body that Jesus Christ was willing to shed his blood to redeem. Paul's saying this, our sexual habits also reflect whether or not God is the Lord of our body. And let me just help you tonight. You don't glorify God in your body by just looking like you did when you were 20, okay? That's not what Paul's saying. It's our culture that has conditioned us to be obsessed with what we look like in the mirror. There's no weight that glorifies God more than the other. There's no amount of wrinkles or not that glorify God more than the other. But what is glorifying God? It's doing the best with what you have. It's being a good steward. So guess what? It's okay to have some ice cream. It's all right. But if you eat ice cream every night and you eat way too much of it, that's probably not good for you and that's probably not glorifying God with your body. 
Friends, this gets down to the nitty-gritty, doesn't it? I know this is a terrible message for prior to Thanksgiving, but here's what I want to tell you. There is a time for feasting, and there's a time for fasting. So feast. Be really full. It's not a sin. It's all good. But friend, if you have four or five meals a week that make you as full as Thanksgiving dinner, you have a problem. You might need to check your relationship with food, right? And it's, it's so ironic, I was reading a statistic this week, that the states that have the highest rate of obesity are the most religious states in America. Now again, there's not a weight that glorifies God more than the other, so that's a very uh, shallow way to measure that. You don't have to be a certain weight, but I'm just saying, if you check your relationship with food, in your relationship with physical activity, in your relationship with water, by the way, with rest. So many of us, we, we really don't realize how much we think we're like God when we pretend like we can function without proper rest. It's not caring for God's temple. We need to realize that the proper use of our bodies is not so that more people can look at us and be impressed. Or more people say, how'd you lose so much weight? That, that matters zilcho to God. He don't care about any of that. We take care of our body and we use it in a way that is moral so that we can honor the Lord because I believe one day you will give an account for how you took care of his temple. Go read the Old Testament and see what God thinks about mismanaging the temple. It'll challenge you. It'll challenge you. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray a prayer of surrender. God, we want to use our bodies for you. And I want to pray for you that you will find discernment to know how to navigate these gray areas. And I'm not saying you need to go on a crazy diet. I'm just saying, why don't you evaluate your relationship with certain things in your life and say, how can I glorify God in this area? So let's pray that together. Father, it's convicting to me that... Uh, my body is so valuable that quite literally your son died to redeem it. That my body is for the Lord. And so Lord, I pray that you would help each Christian in here. Help me, God. We want to give our bodies in useful service to you. Lord, so many great servants of God's of God, their lives have ended early because, God, they have not managed their body well. I pray that it would be the testimony of these Christians that we would use our body for your service. In Jesus' name, amen.